I want to ask you to grab your Bible and open with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 will be the sermon text this morning. And as you turn, I'd like to introduce to you our guest preacher. Dr. Derek Tidball currently hails from the Midlands of England in the city of Leicester. He is an author, a theologian, and a pastor. He has been serving the Lord in ministry for 50 years, basically. And he's averaged writing one book a year. No, not quite. Derek has written almost 40 books in a variety of fields of theology, New Testament ministry, uh, New Testament sociology, and pastoral ministry. He has been a leader in the Evangelical Alliance in Great Britain of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, and his wife currently serves in the leadership of the Baptist Union of Great Britain as well. Derek travels all around the world teaching uh, in seminaries and Bible colleges, and we are very happy to have him here with us today to open the book of Hebrews to us. Uh, This is especially uh, helpful and encouraging to me because Derek is also a close personal friend. He is the reason why Amy and I moved to England a number of years ago to study under his supervision. Uh, He was my doctoral supervisor and father in that way and has been a mentor to me from a distance for a long time. And it is a delight to have him here with us. So please now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 as we read starting at verse 6. It says this. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, Through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and the deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Derek, please come. Well, what a delight to be here at uh, 
Old North this morning. Thank you so much for your welcome and uh, especially to Nick and Amy for their welcome. I remember on a visit to the United States a couple of years ago talking with them about the possibility of moving from Cape Cod to here and just sensing the Lord's way forward and it's great after these years to actually see you here in ministry and leading God's people. Wonderful to be with you again. Now I don't know if uh, you know the quip that George Bernard Shaw once made when he said that if other planets are inhabited they must be using this one as a lunatic asylum. <laughs> and surely day after day you don't need further evidence or proof of the truth of that statement than watching the news programs. Supportive evidence is all around, isn't it? Things just feel out of control. It's as if we're in a world where a madman has got into the driving seat of the car, a drunkard, and he's leading us down the highway, lurching from uh, one lane to another, careering towards uh, certain destruction, or so it seems. And that's the scene on the global scale. And as you burrow down into many individual nations, your own as well as mine in the United Kingdom and across Europe and beyond to other nations, the same almost seems to be true. And the same is often felt, even more personally and closer to hand, what's true on a global scale. Some people feel about their own lives as they seem to wonder quite what's going on and who's in control. The readers of this letter to the Hebrews certainly felt that. Young Christians who had left their Jewish roots and their Jewish families and had been converted to Christ. And instead of everything being absolutely marvelous, transformed to a life of continuous joy and free from problems, they ran smack bang into problem after problem after problem. You see religion and family life, religion and social life in the ancient world were so closely intertwined. So to become a Christian from a Jewish background meant certainly division and disruption in the family. And many of these early Christians felt ostracized by the people who'd nurtured them and loved them most. And in the workplace and in the guild and in the marketplace, they felt persecution and disappointment. And for some of them, the old religion where you didn't have those problems, seemed very attractive again. So running through the book of Hebrews is this thought that maybe we'll revert to what we used to believe and go back and deny this newfound faith in Jesus. And added to their own difficult experience, as this chapter tells us, there were at least two other complicating factors. The first was, as they read their Bibles, whether they read the Old Testament as Jewish folks or whether they read the same text through Christian eyes, they realized that God had an intention for humanity, that human beings were meant to be in control over this creation and rule over it. 
So God's plan, spoken of in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, repeated in different ways throughout the Old Testament, but especially in Psalm 8 verses 7 and 8, were that human beings would be the summit of his creation and that human beings were crowned with glory and honor. And God had put everything in subjection under their feet. They were meant to be the ones who ruled and brought harmony and peace and God's shalom and reign into the world. But it just didn't seem to be happening. Whatever God had intended, human beings had just messed up and failed. And so as the author to the Hebrews puts it, almost a British understatement, <laughs> we don't see everything in control, subject yet to human beings. And they'd say that about their own personal lives, let alone anything beyond the personal dimension. So the first in complication was what God had revealed as his creation plan didn't seem to be happening. And the second complication when you thought of it was, well, how on earth could it happen? <laughs> because human beings were so small and insignificant in the words of the psalm quoted in our reading. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you should care for him? Stephen Hawkins, one of our most brilliant Cambridge scientists, wrote some time ago, human beings, we're such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred thousand million galaxies. That makes it very difficult to believe in a God who would care for us or even notice our existence. <laughs> who are we that this should be claimed of us. And the writer of the Hebrews says to his readers, if that's the situation you're in, then look again. Think more clearly about what's going on. He never wants to deny the struggles and the mess, the difficulties that people encounter. But he does want to say to them, if you're to understand what's going on, and how you cope with those promises from Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, well, you need to get the full picture. And the presence of one man, the presence of one other factor in the picture makes a huge difference. On the screen behind me, on the left-hand side of it, you'll see a burned-out tower block called Grenfell Towers in the west of London. Two months ago, it caught fire. Fire was started in the fourth floor, flat apartment, and uh, to everybody's amazement, the fires spread outside the building. The cladding took a light, and it rapidly went to the top so that within minutes, the whole tower block was engulfed in flames and people inside were struggling to get out. They reckon, though they can't tell because the fire was so intense, they reckon that 80 people died in that Grenfell Tower fire disaster. And as we saw the news stories and heard of the tragedies, the heart-wrenching stories, time and time again over the next week on our television news, so in it all, one repeated thing 
kept on being said by those who'd escaped. We came out of our apartment. We were surrounded by thick smoke. We couldn't find the way we were heading for the fire exit that we knew that was there, but we couldn't see anything. And then we grabbed hold of a fireman, a rescuer, and they had the breathing apparatus on. They could see where they were going, and they led us to safety. The smoke, the fire, the temperature, the flames were all horrendous and real. But the presence of the fire rescuer meant that some were saved. It didn't deny the tragedy and the disaster, but the presence of one person made a difference. And Hebrews says to the congregation to which this letter is addressed, you may be surrounded by a mess and confusion, but we don't see everything yet under control. Ah, but we see him, namely Jesus. Or in the New International Version translation, but we do see Jesus. And his presence in the picture colors, changes everything. Why? Why does seeing Jesus make a difference? Well, says the writer, let me explain. Let me invite you not to do a passing glimpse of Jesus. Not a quick glance, but a, a long focused look and gaze on him. What do you see when you look at Jesus? First of all, in this section of the book, the author tells us you'll see a man. Yes, a man. A human being who reigns, the man who reigns. Human beings like you and I may have failed to fulfill God's creation mandate. We have not ruled as we should over creation for its good and bring God's goodness and benefit out of it. But there is one human being one man who has. Who is this? Well, this Jesus, says Hebrews, is a true human being. Just like you and me, he too was made a little lower than the angels, namely a human one of us. The only one who has ever received the creation mandate and fulfilled it and kept it perfectly without messing up. And our hope for this world lies in a human being. Yes, not in the human beings we normally look to, to our politicians or to our scientists or to our capitalists. They have their place. But there is one man who eclipses them all, who is the only solution, who is the perfect, unfallen human being who lived among us genuinely, and is now God's agent of rescuing the world, namely Jesus. So who is he or where is he? Since, well, we can read about him 2,000 years ago, but where is he now, operative in our world? Well, says Hebrews, this man and there's a play on what we are meant to be as human beings and what Christ truly is 
in these words. This one man, he's the one to whom everything is subject and nothing is outside of his control. And yes, it's true, says Hebrews at present, this is verse uh, 8, we don't see him. Uh, we don't yet see everything subject to him. But do you know where he is? Well, he's crowned with glory and honor. He's at the control center of our world. He's reigning in heaven. Not because he wants to keep a distance from it or is uninvolved. Not because he is unfeeling about what's going on down here. But because from that control unseen center of our universe, he is able to bring about God's long-term plan. To bring the whole of creation and all of our lives under his control. To extinguish all opposition and evil. And to put our fallen worlds to right again that's why he is now reigning with glory and honor and you might want to say what gives him that right well what gives him that right says Hebrews what qualifies him is precisely not only that he was one of us but that he suffered death with us that he shared the full extent of our human existence Every one of us will die one day. The only question is when or perhaps how. But the certainty of it unless Christ returns is non-negotiable. And Jesus, the human being, faced that same path. Partly to identify with us. We all die and as a human being so did he. But more than that, he did it as a substitute for us. We all die for our own sin as a result of the way that we have lived. We earn that physical death and judgment before God. But this perfect man did not merit that death. He dies not for his own sin, but to bear our sins. And he dies because death is not the end of his story. It's not the full stop as we would say the point I think as you would say it's but a comma a significant comma en route the death gives way to victory to resurrection through his death as verse 14 puts it he destroys the power of death that is the devil he pulls uh, Satan into a trap and Satan who thinks that he's pulling the strings of evil and destruction in our world are caught by his own rules and Jesus defeats him by accepting death and rising triumphantly. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, rules at the center of our universe. So we're not a place out of control. Behind the scenes is one who is on the throne. But Hebrews says, keep looking. What do you see? Look again. And as you see Jesus in this light, you see not only the man who rules, but you see the brother who rescues. I'm a younger brother. Uh, I remember the time when I first went to school. Uh, and, uh, of course, the older lads 
like to test you out in the playground, in the schoolyard during the break. And how good it was to have an older, bigger brother to come to your rescue when that first happened. Oh, I think the relationship with the older brother changed as time went on. Uh, humanly speaking, that happens, doesn't it? They're your hero one moment and they're your competition the next moment, sometimes for the girlfriend, apart from anything else. <laughs> so it's not a perfect analogy, but, but here is the analogy. Uh, it's amazing that Hebrews say, wants to labor the point. He is, he is your brother, Jesus, who comes to the rescue. We have two brothers in Britain whose pictures are on the screen who are champion triathlon athletes. I don't know whether they're known over here at all. They're constantly in competitions together and in competitions against one another. Alistair and Johnny Brownlee. Brilliant. They have a string of medals and world championships and Olympic medals to their name. Last year in Mexico, in the World Triathlon Series, they were fully expected to take the first and second place. And as uh, Johnny, uh, the older brother, got towards the finishing line, so it was obvious that he'd overtrained and was totally exhausted. You can see the clips on YouTube, they're staggering to behold, as he begins to wander out of control all over the track. <laughs> and you think, oh, he's within touching distance of the world championship, and he's going to flop, and he's going to fail, and his brother is going to just overtake and get the prize that should have been his. And in a remarkable sequence of events, Alistair came up behind him, saw what was happening, put his arm around his shoulders, and together they approached the finishing tape. And as they got there, and it's all within the rules apparently, as they got there, Alistair pushed his brother across the finishing line first. <laughs> so he, Johnny, got the gold, and Alistair got the silver. The brother who came to the rescue. Hebrews tells you, you have a brother like that who come and stand alongside you and get you through the situation remarkably it says in verse 11 that this brother because we all have the same origin is not ashamed to be called our brother I don't know about you but most families have one branch that they're rather ashamed of they don't want to speak about them. They hide the history. Or if somebody says, oh, you're so-and-so's brother, you quickly change the subject if you can for all sorts of reasons. Now, if anybody wanted to do that, you'd think it was Jesus in relationship to us. <laughs> but no, no, he's not ashamed to be called our brother. Failing and sinful though we may be, such is God's commitment to us in Christ and he comes to the powerful rescue. Verse 10 tells us that he is the pioneer, the founder of our salvation. He's forged the way forward through his own suffering. Didn't happen because he manipulated from a distance. It's not salvation by remote control. But as one of our British theologians, Tom Smale, has put it, 
Our salvation pictures Jesus like the fireman who goes into the fire to put it out. Like the lifeboat man who goes into the storm to the sinking ship to rescue people from it. Like the mountain rescue team who goes into the snow-covered Alps and faces the avalanche for themselves to bring out the wounded in spite of the risk to their own lives. The true rescuer needs to go to where the fire burns and the storm rages and the avalanche entombs and make themselves vulnerable. And our brother Jesus did just that for you and for me. And so as the founder and pioneer, he forces his way through the obstacles that Satan would put in his path, forces his way through the logjam of death in order to restore us to our rightful place within the family and to bring, as Hebrews says, many sons to glory. There's a clear purpose in all this. The clear purpose, as verse 11 tells us, is that he is our brother and he is bringing many sons to glory, verse 11 says, so that we might be sanctified. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. That's one of those lovely religious words, isn't it? It's a concept that embraces a number of dimensions. To be sanctified is to be changed, to be made holy. It means to be set apart exclusively for God and his service. It means when you were rescued and restored to the family, you were restored so that you could reproduce the family likeness. You were not rescued by your brother in order to stagnate. <laughs> I'm in, I've got my ticket to heaven, that's all that matters. You were not rescued by your brother in order just to go on struggle struggling in through life but to see life through different eyes what's characteristic of the world in which we live today what's the symbol of our age well it's probably taking a selfie isn't it everywhere you go you want to capture the moment and say you were there you weren't rescued to take spiritual selfies to be involved in this great event or that great event. You can't stand alongside as I will later in the day and get out your cell phone and take a picture of you standing alongside Nick Gatsky and you get to the judgment seat and you produce the selfie and say, it's all right, I'm in, I know Nick, he's a good friend of mine. <laughs> you weren't saved to indulge in selfies, you were saved to be sanctified, <laughs> to be changed, to become like Christ. And all that's by the grace of God because we have a brother who comes to the rescue. But keep looking, says Hebrews. We've not finished yet. From one angle you see the man who rules. From another angle you see the brother who rescues. Let me tell you a third thing that you can see in this chapter about seeing Jesus. You see the priest, the priest who helps we don't particularly in the secular West think too much about priests these days, though elsewhere in the world they've a huge respect and use of them. In our secular world, we've tended to secularize priests 
So we may not have priests, but we do have life coaches and personal trainers and, uh, and counselors and therapists which are trying to fill the vacuum that the priests have left as we've marginalized them. But go back into the thought world of the ancient Jewish world and priests were central. Priests had a major role to accomplish in the community of Israel. And Hebrews wants to say, just as priests are common and central, so here is one priest who is in a class entirely of his own. This priest is in a class of his own because of his character. He's merciful and faithful. We don't know the attitude of the priests when people brought their sacrifices to the tabernacle and the temple. Some of them, no doubt, would have been a bit sour. Huh, you again? Failed again? Offering another sacrifice to get off the hook, are you? Some of them may not altogether have been compassionate and understanding or faithful. Some of them may have just been perfunctory in their routine and in their duty. Certainly when people look for help today, that's what they often face. The bane of my life is ringing a big corporation or the tax authority or an insurance company and you get one of these automated answer machines. There is no humanity in the voice that you meet as you spend hours trying to get directed to the help. <laughs> and they seem to put every barrier in your way rather than smooth the path. <laughs> Those who suffered in Grenfell Tower felt, rightly or wrongly, that as they found themselves in that awful situation and needed emergency help, the bureaucracy of the local government was not merciful and faithful, but harsh and denying. But when you encounter this priest, you encounter one who is merciful and faithful, gracious and trustworthy, compassionate in his response. He's in a class of his own because of his actions. You never get far away in Hebrews chapter 2 here from the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus offered. What do priests do? They offer sacrifice. And those sacrifices repair the broken breaches between God and his people because of sin. And Jesus offered sacrifice. The difference was the sacrifice that he offered was in a class apart from any other. It was the sacrifice of his own life that resolved the problem and overcame the sin once and for all by propitiating the holiness of God and his demands on our lives. How did he do it? Well, by offering his own life, which needed no sacrifice, for he was unblemished, offering his own body on a cross as the ultimate perfect sacrifice to deliver us. And here at the end of Hebrews 2, we're told in verse 18 that he is able to help to help those who are tempted. That's the particular issue, being tempted to go back to the old ways. Hey, you'll find strength, says the author to Hebrews, in Jesus, the priest who is compassionate, who'll never let you down. As Hebrews goes on just a couple of chapters later, the author comes back to that very theme. 
and talks about the great high priest who not only helps us when we're tempted, but when we're facing all sorts of other issues. Let us then, says Hebrews 4, 15, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And this week, whatever your particular need is, you have a high priest who longs to come and stand alongside you, who's offered the perfect sacrifice on your behalf. There's no other sacrifice that needs to be offered, but you'll find grace and mercy and support through him. Do you see Jesus? Have you ever stood at the end of a, a, a marathon <laughs> waiting to see a family member who's been running? The whole crowd are coming towards the finishing line and there you are with your family stretching your neck to observe and what joy it is when, oh, I see him, there he is, there he is. You pick him out from the crowd. It's the only one that really matters to you. Never mind the rest. <laughs> well, look at Jesus like that. Yes, the mess is real. Not everything is yet under his foot, feet. But we see him, and that's the most crucial thing. Do you remember how often that occurs in the accounts of the resurrection? As they went to Emmaus that night, Jesus appeared to him, and those two disciples went back to Jerusalem, saying to the other apostles, we have seen the Lord. Mary, early in that morning, in that conversation with the one she thought was the gardener, went to the other male disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. Thomas, full of doubt, comes to meet with his colleagues on a second occasion, and they say, the Lord has appeared to us. Oh, let's not be folks who believe in a Disney spirituality who make everything very sweet and nice and wonderful when the reality is this planet does seem to be in charge by, of those who have escaped from a lunatic asylum. There are some awful things happening. Yeah, let's not deny reality. But let's get the complete picture. And what a difference it makes when you put Jesus into that picture. And you see him, who is the man who rules, who is the brother who rescues, and who is the priest who helps. Take a long, long look at Jesus.